a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely, wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you aboard today. And my friend Eric Peters, my fellow wrong thinker, joins us as well. Eric, how are you? I'm good, and as undiapered as ever. Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, we're going to talk about uh, the diapering and and the intensity of what's going on. But for a change, we actually have some good news as we get started today. Tell us, what's the good news that, that people should know? Well, in Pennsylvania, which is one of the states that has a particularly virulent Gesundheitsfuhrer and had among the most severe lockdowns and face diapering mandates in the country, a federal judge has, has ruled that much of that is not constitutional. Um, which is really good news. And a similar litigation is underway in Ohio, I believe, and a number of other states. And essentially the gist of it is that all of this is predicated on temporary emergency powers, which most governors do possess. The problem is it's become a permanent assertion of emergency powers. We're, what, eight months now, nine months into this thing? And in most cases, in most states, the, the time limit on emergency powers is two weeks, a month, something like that. So we are clearly at the point where this unchecked assertion of arbitrary and essentially unlimited power has got to be checked. Well, that is, uh, that is a relief, and thank goodness. Um, the, the question now is, uh, so this ruling took place in, in Pennsylvania. Is it likely yes. that, that similar rulings will have to take place in other districts across the U.S. before some of these, uh, these orders are struck down? Well, it comes down to, you remember the old story about Andrew Jackson and the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court issued a ruling that was contrary to what Andrew Jackson wanted, and Andrew Jackson said uh, that, that Mr. Justice Taney, I believe it was, has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Oh, yeah. So, so we're at that point now. It's a question of whether in Pennsylvania and in these other states the Gesundheitsführer governors are simply going to become overtly lawless and continue to enforce these edicts that they have issued, notwithstanding the fact that the courts have said, hey, you can't do this legally. This is not constitutional. You don't have this power. So we will see. Well, there's, there's a full-blown rebellion uh, brewing here in my home state of Utah in that uh, there is a coalition of citizens and, and political action committees and different uh, organizations. And I, I'm talking dozens of them have come together on a resolution telling the governor and lieutenant governor and, and other authorities, we'll go ahead and take the reins of power back now. We're declaring this emergency over. We are ready to get on with our lives. I'm curious to see what, if any, legal action that might lead to. Well, I am too, and not just legal action, but physical action, whether there is going to be some sort of a clash between, for example, the police acting at the behest of the Gesundheitsführers uh, and the general public, which says, hey, wait a minute, you guys have overstepped. Uh, none of this has been enacted uh, duly into law by duly elected representatives. This is not acceptable. Um, we'll see what happens. It's a very interesting dynamic that's, that's beginning to play out across the country. You actually address this idea that uh, why the law isn't except when it suits in a column that was uh, published, uh, I guess, uh, just yesterday. 
And <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your observations here. Uh, the law seems to be a rather flexible thing, as we're starting to see now. Nancy Pelosi gets in trouble for having her hair cut, and yet we learn uh, at the same time in San Francisco uh, there were city-operated and owned gyms that were left open for city employees, but the other gym owners, the private sector, was told, yeah, you have people come in and work out, you know, you'll go to jail. You'll be fined. Yeah. Well, we all know that this is uh, a, a much more general problem, and it's a problem that precedes woo-flu fever. Uh, gosh, you can come up with any number of examples. You can come up with the examples of cops, example of cops not wearing seatbelts, for example, and speeding uh, blatantly and flagrantly, and nothing, uh, nothing happens to them. They don't get any tickets. You and I, of course, do get ticketed for such things. Nancy Pelosi decrees that you must wear a diaper, you must do all of this, but of course it doesn't apply to her. Uh, Congress passes Obamacare, says you and I have to give money to a private insurance mafia, but they exempt themselves from the same provisions, and one can go on and on and on. And now we've got this juxtaposition of, on the one hand, federal laws that uh, require any business that does business with the public to not discriminate uh, on the basis of uh, medical condition or handicap, uh, openly violating those laws with impunity. Uh, those, those laws are, are not being enforced when violated uh, with regard to this face diapering thing. You know, there is an exemption in every state Gesundheitsführer decree that if you have a medical uh, reason, if you have a, a health or safety reason for not wearing a diaper, and it's not defined, and you do not have to uh, state what it is nor produce a doctor's note, you just simply assert it, they can't compel you to wear a diaper, and yet they do. It is exactly as if they had a sign out in front that said whites only. And of course, that law, I mean, if they did that as a policy, you know perfectly well that they would feel the full force and effect of the law. But in this case, the government wants people to face diaper, hasn't passed a law requiring people to face diaper. So what it does is it pressures the business by not applying pressure to follow one law, but pressuring them in other ways to get people to do what it wants. Okay, so here's the question I have. I mean, this, this development in Pennsylvania is very good. What about recourse? Well, there's legal recourse, obviously, but we don't want to necessarily put ourselves in the position of having to go to court. On the other hand, I've long maintained that the key to this is resistance, not attacking people, not, not engaging in violence, but simply refusing to comply with outrageous, illegal decrees, such as those saying you have to walk around uh, like a separating leper wearing a dirty old bandana over your face so you're, you're not able to get food and live your life. No, I, I agree. It's it's uh, it's not just the the words on paper like the resolution that was passed here in Utah. It's the actions and the people yep. who signed on to that, how they choose to live their lives. And unfortunately, uh, like a lot of places, we're still seeing a very aggressive level of mask enforcement, um, primarily at you know grocery stores, big box stores, and the like. I don't know how we get around that. Well, by, I'll give you a personal story. Uh, you just have to have a little gut sometimes and, and take a little initiative. I, I mentioned to you in previous conversations that I was excommunicated by my dentist, the, the dentist that I've been seeing for more than 10 years, because I refused to play the sickness kabuki. They, they wanted me to put on the stupid diaper to walk the 10 yards from the check-in desk to the chair where, where the guy was going to work on my teeth. And I said to him openly, I'm not playing sickness kabuki, so he, I was shown the door. Well, I found another dentist who shall remain nameless, who has the signs on the door, you know, the very ominous-looking signs, you must not enter without a mask and all of that. Well, I just walked right through the door and acted completely normal. 
And I went up to the counter, and I had a nice conversation with uh, the, the woman who, who checks you in, and I'm scheduled to get uh, an old filling replaced very shortly without having to wear a diaper. And it was because I was willing, I was not intimidated by a sign placed on the door, which the dentist had to do, just like every other business has to do, because they're under pressure from the government. But a lot of this is, is, is not, hasn't got anything behind it. A lot of people don't like this, uh, but they can't do anything overt because they're terrified of, of having their business destroyed by the government. However, they're not going to take any steps against you on an individual level. Don't ask, don't tell. So just a little bit of confidence goes a long way. That's right. Walk right through the door. I do the same thing uh, at supermarkets and stores. I went to Sam's the other day, and I was fully prepared, if they had accosted me in any way, to say, look, uh, I did not buy my membership uh, on the basis that I would be required to wear a face diaper, so I will want my money back for my membership. Uh, that's not part of the deal here. But nobody said anything to me, even though there were all these very Stalinist-looking signs by the interest, you know, the big block letters, face masks are required for entry. Just walk right through the door. I love it. I, I just, I wish there were some way to bottle what you're describing and, and sell it as a tonic, you know, to help, help people find a backbone once again. <laughs> well, I've always been anti-authoritarian, and that's why I'm a libertarian. And a lot of people, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, but a lot of people just don't want to deal with the conflict. And it's a human and natural thing to just want to go shopping, be left alone, not deal with the stress of worrying that somebody's going to berate you or accost you. And I think that's why a lot of people are, are wearing the diaper. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're just doing it to avoid a conflict. And I tell the people who ask me about that, that's a short-sighted policy because the next thing is going to be the needling if you kowtow to the diapering. So at what point are you going to say enough is enough and, and not play kabuki any longer with these people? No, agree completely. If you're just joining us, my guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, we're up against the break here, so we'll, we'll take a quick mm -hmm. time out, pay a couple of bills, and come right back. Um, when we great. come back, I want to touch on something that you posted on your website. I don't remember if this was a listener's question, but uh, it's the, the video from a school district in Oregon. Helping, oh, God, yes. Helping yeah. get the kids programmed, I'm sorry, ready mm -hmm. for school. Scary stuff. Yeah. Okay, we'll touch on that just the other side of these commercial messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, there's a lot of great information on your website. I mean, you, you are cranking out uh, articles and columns probably, what, five times, seven times a week, plus answering listeners or, and, and readers' questions. You're a pretty busy guy. I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, somebody's got to do it. You know, I find myself in this very very odd position of being, as far as I can tell, the only car journalist who's willing to touch a lot of these subjects. It seems as though the, the entire assembled ranks of the rest of the automotive press is in lockstep with uh, all of the politically correct nostrums. Um, 
And I guess it's because they're wholly owned captives of the corporate media, whereas I've been off the reservation now uh, for more than 20 years. Well, let's let's talk about something automotive. I know you had, had posted an article the other day uh, titled, Higher Gas Mileage No Matter What It yeah. Costs You. And, and uh, what does that mean? Well, it's, it refers to the federal government's practice uh, since the 70s of decreeing how many miles per gallon your car is going to get. In other words, uh, you're too stupid to decide for yourself how many miles per gallon your car is going to get. And the car industry is so evil and, and so perplexed that rather than building cars to suit the market, it builds cars to suit its own nefarious ends and foists them off on you were it not for the white knight on government, of government coming in to save you. That's the way it's portrayed anyway. Uh, in fact, um, what it amounts to is the government making cars more and more expensive and taking more and more choice away from you in the name of fuel economy uber alles. There's been an ongoing battle ever since Trump was president to reverse something that was passed during Obama's presidency that would have made the mandatory minimum mileage that all new cars have to achieve by just about five years from now, model year 2025, nearly 50 miles per gallon. Now, if you think about that, there isn't a single car on the road right now, new car, that isn't a hybrid that gets anywhere near 50 miles per gallon. And forget about any truck or SUV. They just don't do it because there are different types of vehicles built to suit different purposes, and people buy them for different reasons. Anyway, if you don't make this mandatory minimum MPG cut, the government hits you with fines, and Obama wanted to triple the fines that are applied. And uh, Trump, to his great credit, said, no, that's going to make vehicles much more expensive for people, which is kind of contrary to the purpose, isn't it? If the whole objective of this is to save people money, how do you save people money by making them pay more for cars, which is what this comes down to? Uh, you spend money for gas, you spend money for the vehicle, and uh, it, you'll have fewer choices because it will become very difficult for car companies to sell things like trucks and SUVs, which are the popular vehicles. That's what the market, that's what people want to buy. Anyway, unfortunately, a court just countermanded Trump, and so it's going to ascend to the next highest level, and it might go ultimately to the Supreme Court for a decision. My point of view on this is it's, it simply should be left to the market to decide. If people desire very high fuel economy cars, it doesn't make any sense that the car companies wouldn't provide them. And contrary-wise, if most people want a vehicle that gets so-so eh, gas mileage, but it's got a nice big engine and it's a big roomy vehicle and it takes my family where we need to go, people should be able to buy that. They're the ones who are paying for these vehicles, not the government. So was it environmentalism that, that fueled this you know, government-backed uh, uh, fatwa? Well, and here's another oily and disingenuous marketing trick. Initially, this thing was presented as a fuel economy measure back in the 70s when there were gas lines, which were also artificially created. And the idea was, oh, boy, uh, we're going to run out of gas. Therefore, we have to make sure that vehicles use less of it. But that's changed over the last several years because gas has proved to be both inexpensive and very abundant. So they had to shift the, the, uh, the paradigm a little bit, and now they've been couching it in environmental language to guilt people into accepting it. They say that this is necessary because we're going to reduce pollution. Pollution now has been redefined not in terms of the things that make the sky dark with smog or which make it hard for people to breathe because those things are non-issues anymore, but rather carbon dioxide. How dare you cue Greta voice? Wow. 
Wow. Well, you've, you offer, I think, a very um, clear explanation of people who are wondering, well, whatever happened to the station wagon? Whatever happened to, mm-hmm. you know, large vehicles, which you could safely yep. drive your family in? And, and this, yep. this is one of the reasons why. We took a trip to Yellowstone, my family and I uh, did back in uh, June. Now, I have four kids at home. We took a couple of their cousins with us. That was a pretty good-sized family. And thankfully, mm-hmm. my neighbor has a nice, big 10-passenger van, very comfortable. When we, mm-hmm. when we drove that trip to and from Yellowstone, my wife and I looked at each other and said, why haven't, we, why haven't we just got a bigger vehicle before? Because normally we're packed into one of the smaller, more That's affordable right. cars. You know, I just, I mean, God bless my neighbor for being so kind to share with us. But it made such a quality in how we travel. If that were an option, yes, we would do that every single time. Sure, and note that in order for you to do that trip with, uh, without a vehicle like that, you would have needed two vehicles. Absolutely. So, so even if you had a vehicle, a little one, that gets, say, uh, 35 miles per gallon rather than 25 miles per gallon, well, now you've got to get two vehicles that get 35 miles per gallon, and you end up using more gas than you would have using the two vehicles rather than the one. Well, it's encouraging that, uh, that President Trump tried to roll back some of these uh, mandatory minimums and fines, you know, regarding the the fuel economy standards. But I guess it's not surprising that there would be pushback. I'm sure that the uh, automotive lobby and and others, maybe the environmental lobby, uh, were among those who who wouldn't want to to see that to happen. Well, the real tragedy here is that the auto industry has actually been, as a all not all of them, but most of the industry has been fighting Trump on this. And the reason they've been fighting Trump on this is because they've decided uh, it's better to, uh, to love Big Brother than to fight Big Brother. They have invested a lot of money in things like electric cars, hybrids, um, elaborate technologies to meet what they anticipated, because law, you know, back during the Obama years predicted this, would be their requirement by 2025. So now they're in this position of, well, if these mandates don't go into effect, we'll have all this technology and stuff on our hands that we can't sell because people aren't going to buy it if they've got the option to buy something else. So it's really a tragic thing. Well, and it's a shame that uh, people are portrayed as selfish for wanting to drive a larger, sturdier, albeit uh, you know, less fuel-efficient car. Selfish how? how? What are they taking away from anybody else? Well, they're, let's, they're using let's... their own money to buy a vehicle that suits their needs, their family's needs. Uh, nobody else is being made to pay for that. So I don't understand that argument. And, and this is where they would trot out Greta Thunberg. Well, you're robbing yeah. us of our future and the, and, and the emissions. And, and you point out in your article, um, in the sense that the exhaust does include some carbon dioxide, yeah, it, it does emit carbon dioxide. But as you pointed out earlier, that's hardly the same thing as rolling coal, you know, in a, in a bro dozer. Well, sure. It's the same theme with regard to the face diapering. All of it is gaslit predicated on a false, exaggerated premise. With diapering, it's you might be sick. You could kill people. Not that you are or that you do, but this assertion by a neurotic that you might. And with regard to the CO2, it's the same thing. It's an assertion by a neurotic uh, that, oh, my God, the climate is going to die if you drive your SUV rather than your little Prius. There's nothing to justify (laughs) this other than the neurosis and the guilt tripping, which by some bizarre mechanism has become an acceptable form of argument now. You know, a child stamping its foot, a mentally ill person uh, erupting in outrage somehow is sufficient to justify sane people kowtowing to it. I don't get it. 
Eric, we're down to about a minute left in the program. Let's take a moment to talk about your website. Tell me about your sponsors as well. Well, sure. Uh, we have some really good advertisers, and when I say really good, I mean people I personally know and whose, whose products I personally use. Uh, Valentine One Radar Detectors uh, is one of, one of the great ones. They have recently made an upgrade to their units to filter out all of the big brothery emissions of radar that are coming out of so many vehicles that would result in false beeps and false positives uh, from other detectors. Uh, I highly recommend their stuff. I also recommend Amsoil products. Uh, and I also refer people to the National Motorist Association, which is kind of the libertarian alternative to AAA, which has become another adjunct of big government. Okay, check it out for yourself. It's epautos.com. Also, some terrific food for thought there. Much more nutritious than what you're going to find on other lesser websites. Eric, thanks for visiting with us today. Likewise, keep on wrong thinking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, want to mention the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I don't know if you're in the market for a, a new home loan. A lot of people moving. I mean, a lot of people fleeing some of the big metropolises around the country, trying to find a more sane place to live. Well, if you're one of them and you're uh, going to be in one of the 23 states where Patriot Home Mortgage is active, you should contact my friend John Staples or his lovely wife, Heather, and let the Staples-Turner team be your team to get you uh, set up with that new home loan, get you pre-qualified, maybe refinance your existing home loan. Go to staplesmortgage.com, and uh, they will give you all the contact information you need right there, staplesmortgage.com. And if you could just do me this small favor, mention that you checked them out because their message reached your ears via my voice. That's all. Just let them know that uh, their advertising message is working and that it reached you. All right, let's talk for a moment about, uh, uh, well, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi's hairdo. I know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about what this politician did or that politician did, but I know you've seen something in the news about this recently. And what if I were to tell you that that hairdo and the, the kerfuffle over her hairdo is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of official hypocrisy from lockdown tyrants. If you can't see the double standard that's at play here, it's time to get your eyes checked. John Miltimore actually has another infuriating example of government gyms remaining open when private gym owners were being threatened with fines or jail. This is out of San Francisco. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, where John Miltimore writes, For months, most gyms in San Francisco have been closed, the result of a city order preventing them from opening their doors as a public safety measure during the COVID-19 pandemic. Not so, not so different from what you've seen in other cities across the country, right? But, he points out, not all gyms. It was recently revealed that some gyms, specifically city-owned ones, have been open for months allowing city employees to take full advantage by exercising during these stressful times. Now, local gym owners understandably sounded a little unhappy when the discovery was brought to their attention. Daniel Danielle Rabkin from the CrossFit Golden Gate told a Bay Area network, it's shocking, it's infuriating. Even though they're getting exposed, there are no repercussions, no ramifications. It's shocking. 
John Miltimore says the episode drives home the banality of hashtags that say, we're all in this together. <laughs> As one gym owner pointed out, there are clearly separate rules for some. Dave Caracker, owner of MX3 Fitness in the Castro, says it just demonstrates that there, was some, there seems to be some kind of a double standard between what city employees are allowed to do and what the residents of San Francisco are allowed to do. And John Miltimore says perhaps in response to outrage over this and similar revelations, San Francisco announced that it would open indoor hair and nail salons, gyms and hotels next week. Actually, I think that's this week because I believe this article was published last week. Yeah, this was published last Friday. So, well, good for them. They're going to open it up. What about the double standards? You know, this has been the rule of 2020, says John Miltor, not the exception. He says it started with government officials deciding which businesses were essential and would be allowed to remain open. It was pretty confusing. Protesting was a non-essential activity, unless it was essential. Naturally, nobody except other businesses wanted to suggest liquor stores were not essential. If there's a lesson that runs through American history, it's not to mess too much with Americans' booze. But John Miltimore says time and again, what we really saw was commerce that helped the government or was politically convenient to lawmakers was deemed essential. I've actually heard some people use the term preferred, which I think is is more descriptive and, and, and likely tells the tale more exactly. He says the hypocrisy didn't end there, however, from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's secret salon visit to New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio's, I need this exercise defense, to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot's I am the face of this city declaration and beyond, we saw public officials carve out exceptions for themselves during state-enforced shutdowns. And by the way, he's got, the, he's got a great tweet here with all three of them, Pelosi, de Blasio, and Lightfoot. And he says there's a reason public officials speak this way. Craziness. Meanwhile, businesses who attempted to peaceably offer those very same goods or services, they faced severe repercussions, fines, permanent closure, maybe even jail if they tried. So John Miltimore says, as he explained last week, these scandals make great hay politically because humans despise hypocrisy. But he says there's a much bigger lesson to be learned as government control over the economy expands and free markets recede privileges become increasingly the province of those in power or those who have proximity to power. Now, this could be seen in communist Russia, for those of you who remember history, where the party elite called the nomenklatura had special privileges that afforded them a lifestyle that contrasted sharply with the poverty of the masses. As the L.A. Times reported in 1986, members of the nomenklatura, perhaps numbering a million, have special holiday retreats access to special medical facilities, and, most resented by ordinary Russians, access to special stores that sell imported and Soviet-made goods that are simply not available in the regular stores. Many also have cars and chauffeurs. As a practical matter, the privileges are hereditary since children of the elite have an inside track on admission to the top universities, graduation from which guarantees them good jobs and a place on the nomenclature list. End quote. Kind of reminds me of the old joke of, do the Russian people eat caviar? Yes, through their elected representatives. Anyhow, John Miltimore says, as the lockdowns move America closer to a command economy, perhaps closer than we've ever been before, 
what we are seeing in these stories is the rise of an American nomenclature. As Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, there's a reason Americans despise orders that allow some people to work out, but maybe not others. It's because they're deeply un-American. Egalitarian in the sense of equal treatment under the law is part of the fiber of America. It's embedded in our Constitution. It's an idea you'll find defended on both the right and the left. And he provides examples. But he says, fewer things are likely to irritate Americans more than nakedly unequal treatment of individuals. It's an aversion that galvanized some of the most famous political movements in history, from abolitionism to women's suffrage to civil rights. John Miltimore says the lockdowns have been disastrous, but if they have helped remind Americans of the utterly unegalitarian results of expanding the state's tentacles into free markets, perhaps they've done a small bit of good. Now, the question that remains in my mind is, so what do we do about it? What do you and I do? There's a movement afoot right now in my home state of Utah that um, I don't disagree with. I, I'm watching it closely. I'm trying to see if... if if it's the kind of thing that will gain traction. And, and I look at the, the signatories, the organizations and individuals that have signed on to this, and essentially it's a resolution declaring we the people and the, you know the representatives of these following organizations hereby declare the state of emergency is over. In other words, we withdraw our consent, we exercise our sovereignty as the source of political power and uh, governor, lieutenant governor, Various health officials were declaring an end to this emergency, and we're ready to resume our lives. Now, you might think, well, that's a bunch of sovereign citizen garbage and, you know, just a bunch of these radical people. I don't know, man. I looked at that list and I went, there's a lot of pretty respectable organizations on there. And the thing that blows me away is there's a lot of them. Dozens, to be sure. I only saw one legislator's name on there. That was uh, Representative Phil Lyman, who, um, I'll tell you, I think Phil is a great man. Phil is a guy who has suffered for living up to his principles. And therefore, I take him a little more seriously than those who talk a good talk but don't really walk the walk. But here's the bottom line. There is definitely a spreading movement of people who are just tired of waiting for someone in authority to tell them it's okay for you to go back to work, or it's okay for you to get together for a family party, or it's okay for you to go somewhere without wearing the ubiquitous mask. And I think this is based not in rebelliousness or even just, you know, simple defiance. I think this pushback is based in the idea that there's no end in sight. Those in authority seem to be holding this over. They've taken power under themselves that, that wasn't really theirs to begin with. And because of that, they really don't feel inclined to give it back. There's no clear enumeration, as I can see, in the Utah Constitution or legislatively that says, yeah, 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 the governor signs an executive order. It has the force of law. He's not a legislator. And I believe that the only way we're going to see the tide turn is for enough people to stand up and say, yeah, we're not going to go along with this anymore. So I think what we're looking at right now is an opportunity for people to take the matter into their own hands and peacefully but very determinedly say we're not going to put up with this any longer. 
And the only question I have is what took him so long? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back. By the way, I have a couple of very special guests in the other hour of the program. Once again, I'm going to be visiting with Alexander Salter, who is a professor of economics. We're going to be talking not about the Federal Reserve, but we're actually going to be talking about space. Could you could you imagine the U.S. becoming a spacefaring nation once again? It's happening, but it's not government that seems to be leading out. In fact, if you've been paying attention, it's private corporations that are opening those doors. That's uh, that's in the other hour of the show, and you can find that on thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where you'll find the podcast posted Definitely worth your time. Gary Welch also is going to join me. I, I know it's getting closer to the election, but we haven't talked a lot about third parties other than people saying, well, there's no way a third party could ever win. So maybe that's a discussion that's that's worth having. Is it possible that a third party could ever stand a chance? Well, tune in and find out. All right. Let's talk about the politicizing of truth. It is getting tough to find truth. In fact, it's getting so tough that um, one of the things I would point to as, as proof of this is that, the, the, that YouTube is actually censoring Dr. Scott Atlas. And if you don't know who Dr. Scott Atlas is, um, President Trump, I, I don't know if he hired him or appointed him as a top health advisor to the White House, more or less replacing, you know, media darling Anthony Fauci in that role. Well, back late last month, the Hoover Institution filmed an in-depth interview with Dr. Atlas. Now, he's an advocate for opening up the economy and allowing natural immunities to control the virus. In other words, taking a similar approach to what Sweden did. And I'm just going to point out for the sake of those who might be uh, wondering, yeah, but how is Sweden doing? Well, on a per capita basis, their deaths are far below those in the United States at this time. They're far closer to herd immunity. So maybe it's worth listening to another voice besides Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, Dr. Scott Atlas has colleagues in the public health profession or public health profession rather that that agree with him. Lots of epidemiologists, virologists, immunologists, medical doctors, all names that you will find frequently mentioned in the American Institute for Economic Research's articles. But this interview conducted by the Hoover Institution allows Dr. Atlas to explain his views in depth. What do you suppose the reaction is from the guardians of truth? Well, YouTube has absolutely taken down the interview for the usual vague reasons that it violates our community standards. Someone is very determined that you not be presented with any contrary viewpoints. It's not a matter of, well, this guy's out there costing people lives because he's, he's peddling lies. If that's the case, then let him dig his own grave with those words. Let him be heard. Let him be part of the public record. Oh, no, 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 no. They're so dangerous, you can't even be trusted to hear them, much less consider them. Well, that's just handy, isn't it? Alex Berenson is right. As censorship goes, he says this is both terrifying and idiotic. Like him or hate him, 
Scott Atlas is advising the president on COVID. No one gains when YouTube denies everyone the chance to hear what Dr. Atlas thinks. In fact, he says people who oppose him should want to know even more. End quote. Now, two aspects of this are fortunate. LBRY has retained a copy. That copy is embedded in the article, which you will find in the show notes posted at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's worth your time to watch this video. Because if this can happen to a world-class, highly credentialed expert like Dr. Atlas, it can happen to anyone. And I think this also underscores something that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and that is, this is why we need decentralized information sources and solutions like LBRY now in the interest of openness, freedom, and truth. So check it out. You'll find it posted in the show notes again, September 15th, thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, one final article. This was a good one uh, from Brian Kaplan, who is uh, another just brilliant writer. I picked this one up off of intellect, not intellectual takeout. Sorry, intellectual takeout. You just got a free plug. This was from everythingvoluntary.com. Implicit and structural witchery. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You're back in Salem during the 1690s. After an exhaustive hunt for witches, the Lord High Witch Hunter files a bombshell report. Despite his best efforts... He's failed to find any witches in Salem. Don't imagine, though, that the fight against witchery is over. During his investigation, the Lord High Witch Hunter uncovered an enormous volume of implicit witchery and structural witchery. For example, residents of Salem occasionally skip church or lose interest during the sermon. Why, that's implicit witchery, pure and simple. Even worse, some leading merchants happily trade with Catholics and pagans. That's structural witchery at the highest levels of society. Now, Brian Kaplan says, if you're part of this society, you'd better not laugh. That's implicit witchery, too. For anyone, however, the Lord High Witch Hunter's report is absurd. For anyone else, that is. The magistrate launches a massive witch hunt. He fails to detect actual witches, actual witches, rather. So he redefines witchery as, quote, lack of single-minded devotion to my faith, end quote. Brian Kaplan says, why bother with this farce to make a thinly veiled threat? If you're not part of the solution to witchery, you're an implicit structural witch and you will be burned like a witch. Now, similarly, imagine that during the McCarthy era, you fail to uncover any actual communists. The Lord High McCarthyite could admit he was wrong. But where's the fun in that? Wouldn't it be better to declare that you've discovered a massive dose of implicit communism and structural communism? As long as your society fears you, anything could count. Perhaps support for progressive taxes is implicit in communism. Perhaps the overrepresentation of left-wing academics in state-funded universities is structural communism. Yes, you can cry bait and switch, but that sounds dangerously close to implicit communism. Now he has another example. He says, suppose you're in modern Iran. The Lord High Inquisitor hunts for atheists, but he can't find any. So he declares a war on implicit atheism and structural atheism, which abound even in the Islamic Republic. Shocking? Not really, because almost anything qualifies as implicit atheism or structural atheism. If this is such an obvious scam, how come hardly anyone in Iran says so? Fear. Minimizing the danger of implicit atheism is a prime example of implicit atheism. 
Are the alarm bells ringing? Are you starting to see the picture of what he's illustrating here? Brian Kaplan says, in the modern West, hardly anyone worries about in-the-flesh witches, communists, or atheists, atheists rather, much less implicit or structural versions of these creeds. But that's because the targets have changed, not because the age of moral panic is over. And while the list of targets is long, racists and sexists are plainly at the top. He says the most obvious result is that people spend ample time trying to find racist and sexist individuals. In practice, however, that's as frustrating as trying to find witches in Salem. People today are about as likely to declare themselves racist and sexist as people in 17th century Massachusetts were to declare themselves brides of Satan. Part of the reason, no doubt, is fear. Avowed racists do get punched in the face, after all. The main reason, though, is that almost no one sympathizes with creeds that almost everyone hates. So what are you supposed to do if you want to continue the good fight against the social ills you've already practically driven to extinction? Well, Brian Kaplan says you move the goalposts all the way to Mars. These days, the world's best detectives would struggle to find outright racists and sexists. Yet implicit racism, structural racism, implicit sexism, and structural sexism will always be in plain sight because the definition expands as the phenomenon contracts. I'm sorry, but I think that is just plain brilliant. And it's a reason why it's so hard to take people seriously. And, you know, no offense to you who are supporters of Black Lives Matter. But when every single thing that happens is, you know, an occasion to riot or to go crazy, what? A police officer, a white police officer shoved a black man for getting in his face? A dirty cracker touched a kang? We must burn the city in retribution. My point is simply there are people who are looking for implicit and structural racism, and the only reason they're finding it is because they are the ones generating it. Don't fall into their spell. Don't don't succumb to their siren song. You can love other people. You can show respect for other people. Live the golden rule, which really pretty much sums up how we're supposed to be treating each other in the first place without having to dismantle all these implicit and structural blah-blah-blahs that are supposedly going on. I know, it's more work to actually be a decent human being than to simply declare yourself as against something that's bad. Too many people are taking that uh, path of least resistance, though. We'd actually be better if they didn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show.